Hello and welcome to episode number 193 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. Remember to follow along on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. In this episode, we hear from the translator Aaron Aji, who is here to discuss the life and work of the author Ferit Edgu. Aaron Aji produced a very elegant new translation of two novellas by Ferit Edgu called The Wounded Age and Eastern Tales, which have both just been published in a single volume by New York Review Books. I'm recording this introduction a few days before Turkey's presidential and parliamentary elections. So as I speak here, I have absolutely no idea what happened regarding the result. And we actually also had this conversation a few months ago. In fact, I kept delaying publication because the schedule piled up and I was really just waiting for the right moment. Hopefully this is the right moment. And this conversation is a nice respite from the news agenda, whatever's going on post May 14th. The book and Ferret Edgu oeuvre as a whole do indeed take us into a completely different psychological space. The Wounded Age and Eastern Tales were published separately in Turkish in the 1990s and 2000s and are translated into English here for the first time. Taken together, they give readers an excellent introduction to Edgu's spare, austere style as well as his trademark subject matter. Both are situated in Kurdish-majority East Anatolia and feature narrators from Western Turkey, outsiders struggling in unfamiliar territory, struggling to understand the locals and often experiencing a profound sense of personal dislocation. It's all done very subtly and stylishly, conjuring a powerful atmosphere of claustrophobia. Ferit Edgu is quoted in Aaron Aji's afterword to the book saying, My writing is something like salting the wound which gives you some impression of the vibe. It sounds heavy, but it's actually a beautifully written and beautifully translated volume. I honestly can't recommend it enough. We talk about Ferret Edgu's life and dig into the themes of his work and the themes of the Wounded Age and Eastern Tales in our conversation. But before we get started, let me appeal once again. This podcast does take a lot of time and effort to prepare, edit and piece together. And I do need listener support, your support to be able to keep doing it. Since we launched the podcast back in 2015, we've published almost 200 episodes, giving a platform to researchers, authors, and indeed translators of books related to Turkish history, politics, society, literature, the arts. It's incredibly rewarding to put the podcast together, and I sincerely hope it remains useful for everyone who listens. Turkey Book Talk is completely independent, with no institutional links, no sponsorships. It depends 100% on the goodwill of listeners. So if you are in a position where you can support, please do consider doing so via Patreon. Consider becoming a Turkey Book Talk member. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member isn't just a nice thing to do, it also gets you some pretty good extras. Those extras include a terrific discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Hundreds of Turkey and Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury are available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. As a member, you get a special code to use at the online checkout and you can use it to purchase physical books, pre-orders or ebooks. Turkey Book Talk members also receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself, ranging from 
from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, in addition to all that, I send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But enough of all that, let's get on now to our conversation with Aaron Aji. Perhaps Ferret Edgu's most famous and celebrated novel is A Season in Hakari, which was published back in 1977 and mines similar themes to the two novellas included in this volume. So I started by asking Aaron Aji how and why the translations of The Wounded Age and Eastern Tales were the first to come about. I actually translated the whole thing before proposing it to anyone. I was quite determined to find a place for it. You know, I read Feridetgu when I was in college, and I had sort of gone on my life. Uh, and at that time, in fact, uh, I wasn't thinking of being a translator or anything. But just a few years back, I think it was about uh, three, four years ago, when I sort of rediscovered, if you will, all of Edgu's books that had just come out in new print editions. I bought virtually all of the ones I could find, and I was completely mesmerized, and I, I definitely wanted to translate Hakkari de Birmevsim, a season in Hankari, which is obviously his magnum opus. But I just decided that we need to sort of introduce Feridetgu's style first to the Anglo readers before doing Hakkari. So I put together these two books that also belong to his Hakkari writings, if you will. I put them together, and in fact, as I explained in the afterwards, I also reversed the order because Easter Tales precedes uh, the Wounded Age uh, in terms of publishing chronology. But I did it that way to sort of present the reader a trajectory, if you will, of this incredibly austere style that Edgu achieves throughout these books. And I think it just came together very nicely. It created its own stylistic arc, if you will. And I approached New York Review Books, and thankfully they were very excited, and we decided to do this, and that's how it came to be. Now, this is the first Ferret Edgu text to appear in English translation, as far as I know. Why is no, it taken so long? There is one. There is one other. Uh, it's called No One. And it, it came out a few years back, but it also is very, very unknown. <laughs> it's very unknown because international literature in Anglosphere vies for attention one book at a time, unfortunately. We don't have a very well-developed sense of the national or cultural traditions of these countries from which we, we translate these books. And each book sort of has to vie for itself in a very crowded market that really doesn't have a rhyme or reason as to what gets published first. So in that regard, this is sort of a reintroduction, if you will, of Ferit Edgu to the Anglo readership. And I'm hoping that there will be two 
more texts coming up after this. I mean, you know, I intend to translate two more Edgus. Hopefully that will sort of present him in a larger context. You know, I intend to write also some afterwards for each of them. As to what takes things this long, I wish I knew a good answer for it. The Anglo translation market tends to favor contemporary writing and also contemporary writing that corresponds to the themes and questions that are uh, current in the Anglosphere. So to get canonical texts translated is quite challenging. Before Feridegu, I did uh, Bilge Karasu. And um, there too, Bilge Karasu also had already died. And so his sort of his, his oeuvre was closed, right? You have this set number of books. And so the way I look at it is I'm going to try to make available a number of books by Feridegu, just the way I was able to do with Bilge Karasu. And then, um, you know, you have to trust that these books will find their own readers. And uh, of course, the reviews and studies and all sorts of writing will help. But for the most part, our hope is that uh, the books will, when combined, all four of them, will get a readership that Feridegu long deserved. Now, this particular volume is made of two separate texts that were published in Turkish separately, uh, years yes. apart. Uh, the first section is called The Wounded Age, and the second section is called Eastern Tales. So introduce them both to us. You know, when were they published? What are they about? And how do they fit together? Well, Eastern Tales was originally published in 1995, and The Wounded Age was originally published in 2007. And so they appear in this volume out of sequence, if you will, out of chronology. And they belong to a series of books that Edgu wrote based on his nine-month experience in Akari when he was sent there, if you will, instead of military service. And he, he comes back to them. He writes, uh, I think, at least four volumes. Kimse also belongs to the same group. And in fact, it's the first book that he writes. No one is called. And then the second book is Hakkari de Birmevsim, which is a season in Hakkari, which originally was titled O, the third person pronoun, O as its title. And then um, he goes back to, to the same reserve of memories and journals and notes he has taken and writes in 1995 or publishes in 1995, Eastern Tales. And then uh, 2007, he returns to it again. Now, one of the things that we need to remember is that the subject matter here ostensibly deals with a Western Turkish intellectual's encounter, flesh and blood encounter with the Kurds. And this encounter engenders a, a, an incredibly deep human bond between uh, Edgu and uh, Kurdish people that he interacts with. And so because the conflict with the Kurds has been a pretty chronic, endless conflict, these books also come back because the conflict persists. And he, in fact, he writes these books 
looks as if he's uh, writing about the most recent conflict rather than only the, 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 the time when he was actually there. So it's a very interesting thing where fiction and reality sort of coalesce and where through fiction he returns to Hakkari time and again. And through he, fiction, he is able to sort of weave past memories with current events that he's obviously hearing and reading about while the conflict persists. So those are those are the two books that came together in this volume. And as I said, the, the goal was to really bring out a volume that showcases Ferit Edgu for the incredible artist that he is, because, you know, he is a language artist uh, par excellence. On the other extreme of Bilge Karasu, if you will, you know, Bilge Karasu is famous for his paragraph long sentences, whereas in uh, Ferit Edgu, there is this incredible distillation process that goes on that he wants to sort of say the most things with the fewest words. He distrusts metaphors, he distrusts similes, he wants to sort of make the language work like photography, if you will, but as resonant as a striking image can be, a language also can in fact carry in it almost a vertical depth as well as a horizontal continuity permanence if you will. So I, I, I was really in love with this characteristic of his style, and I thought I wanted this to be presented first, so that a season in Hakkari can be understood better. Now, both texts in the volume, as you say there, feature these similar types of narrators, really. It's the sympathetic, inquisitive person coming from Western Turkey who is keen to know more, but goes through a quite disorienting process. And there's a similar narrator, of course, in, in the book, A Season in Hakkari. And as you say there as well, you know, this is very much based on, uh, or at least inspired by uh, Edgar's own biography, because he went on a similar trip, basically, in 1963. Uh, after he graduated, he was 24 years old and he was assigned to this teaching post in a remote province in southeastern Turkey. And obviously this was a kind of national service, really, that teachers went through. And, you know, as you write in uh, in the afterword to the book, you know, for someone born and raised in Istanbul, this post might as well have been in an utterly unknown country. So that's, I mean, that really does resonate in, in the two texts that we have here and in a lot of his other work as well throughout his writing career. Yes. You know, the question of the narrator is an important one because as I try to also explore it in the afterward, some kind of a disorientation does happen when he finds him that himself there. But also happening at the same time is almost like this fragmentation or deconstruction of the self as he has known all along. And so as a result, the first book he writes, he titles Kimse, which is no one, right? Kimsesis. And this sense of no one then goes in Hakkari and becomes the third person pronoun as if it's a different person outside himself. Now, when we get to these books, indeed, he he moves across a spectrum of points of view, you know, from very sympathetic to, in fact, very aloof or very lost. 
you know, at one point he he describes himself as a captain of a shipwreck on top of a mountain. And so there's a sense of loss. So what he does is he sort of moves between first person, third person narratives, points of view, but also the third person point of view is not stable itself. In fact, all of these are ultimately his own perspectives, right? His own voices. But there is this breakdown of the singular identity, which which he no longer can trust even in this new environment. And so as a result, there is a section in this volume where he says, uh, you know, where he's sort of describing a conversation, if you will, and says, said one voice, said the other voice, said the other voice, said the third voice, said the fourth voice. And then at the very end, it says, I said. So in a way, all of these voices are part and parcel of him combining memory as well as uh, utterly real human experience of disarrangement of the identity of a self's identity so that that's the, that's what's being played now in, in these point of view shifts and edgu's works in many ways put this landscape of eastern anatolia on turkey's literary map on a national literary map but however sympathetic his observations there is this sense in the books that he was an outsider dropping in and he was very keenly aware of that as well and this area this part of the country was and indeed is in many ways essentially turkey's internal orient you know it's a place that not many people want to go to and mm. it's still widely associated culturally with this kind of difference otherness and you write in the afterword as you're just reflecting there in your previous answer that edgu and his narrators are always cognizant of their position as outsiders no amount of received knowledge education or artistic skill proves useful surrounded by people whose culture is utterly strange to him edgu becomes a stranger to himself too so there's that internal personal aspect of these books but there's also the public political aspect that it would be nice to talk about because edgar wrote the two books in this volume at times when it was the height or the nadir of uh, the pkk's insurgency mm-hmm. in eastern turkey mm-hmm. and the resulting crackdown from the state and it's interesting that these two texts really don't deal directly with that conflict it's just implied the implications are there and turkish readers will certainly be aware of it as context but mm. it's far too subtle to really directly address this in a really explicit political sense you know it really doesn't bludgeon the reader with political messages so could you just comment on that aspect of that of the book despite its literary directness in terms of the style it's also very elusive politically Well, it's a very, very tough question you are asking because it sort of is at the heart of the paradox of Turkish politics and Turkish intellectual life, right? I mean, the Kurdish situation is an indisputable, inevitable presence, if you will. And yet, for myriad reasons, we have sort of been either bystanders or second-hand observers. So indeed, you know, Edgu is doing this at a time when It is really quite unusual what he does, right? When he finds himself there, he doesn't really anticipate what he will find out. And so the fact that he becomes a stranger to himself is utterly unexpected for him. You know, he already has written some incredibly interesting books already 
and um, he's very much writing in the vein of existentialist or maybe sort of proto-absurd literature from European tradition. There is a philosophical conviction to these texts, to the earlier texts, and yet he finds the reality of Hakkari utterly challenging regarding any kind of values or virtues or principles or ideologies. He's sort of in a very uh, visceral sense, he experiences an estrangement that then necessitates finding a voice to express in order to really see what he's confronted with. In fact, Edgar himself says, I was reborn in Hakkari. That's a very powerful statement, but I think there is something incredibly true about it. So this rebirth, if you will, is a difficult one. One does not get born with all all his or her faculties ready to function perfectly. So in fact, in these books, we see this development of this new consciousness, the development of this new way of seeing. And in a way, that by itself becomes a political statement. It becomes a political statement that we have to actually look and see and experience somehow independent of our received, conditioned, pre-processed frameworks of seeing and experiencing. That's, I think, what makes him quite revolutionary in, in terms of writing. Now, the style that he uses in this book and indeed in his other work is very striking. It's very plain, very spare and unadorned, austere even. Mm. And I'm going to ask you to, at this stage, read out a passage, a short passage from the book so that listeners can get a, a feel of that style. So just start by introducing the passage to us and then feel free to, to dive right in. Let me read a set of almost snapshots that describe what he is seeing in a refugee camp. Now, the caveat here is that we do not know if this is based on actual experience or if it is, in fact, fiction being able to access a reality for Edgar. But just to show the style, let me read a little bit of this. What's your name? I asked the child standing alone on the side of the road, staring at the hill. Maral. Where are you from, Maral? Nowhere. I'm here. What are you waiting for here? My aga, my father. And where is your aga? She gestures toward the mother. Up there. How many days have you been here, Maral? Many. How do you know your aga will come? Everyone's coming. He'll come too. If he comes, he'll find you in the village. Let's take you there. She shakes her head. Then she starts screaming. There, see, he's coming. Didn't I tell you? He's coming. We look in the direction she is looking. Empty. We see nothing. Where, Maral, I ask. She points at the summit. There, up there. Look, look, he's coming down. I look at Wahab, my guide. Yes, I see, he says. There, he's coming down. I told you, Maral says. She's dreaming, Wahab says. Let's keep going. They escape with their animals, not just horses or mules, sheep as well, 30, 40 of them. Most perished on the way, a man says. He's not crying, maybe smiling. 
They carry two of the wounded sheep on their shoulders. He gestures at the big cauldron nearby. Now they are both in there. A woman is standing by the boiling cauldron, her belly up to her nose. She covers the cauldron, stirs a pungent meat smell. Fate is fate, she says. Born this side of the mountain or the other makes no difference for the baby. Is that what she says? I ask Wahab. Yes, that's what she says. And that she'll name the baby Farman, decree. Is this land's custom, Wahab says. Ferman's the child born in exile. Then he adds, they want us to join them for dinner. Daybreak, I'm watching women washing clothes by the water, their hands pur purple. I notice a bird in the brush, a kind I hadn't seen before. It turns its head, looks back, tail fluttering. The women are also watching the bird, chuckling among themselves. I walk down, offer each woman an orange without speaking to them. They tuck the gifts in their bosoms without speaking to me. For their children, Wahab says. Shouldn't we have given the children something to eat? Why, he asks. So they wouldn't die hungry, I say. Let's not kid ourselves, he says. Haven't you figured it out yet? What we got here is not a problem of conscience. Now, Edgar is quoted in the afterword of this volume, and he says in that quote, I want nothing superfluous in my writing. I've tried to do away with narration, fictionalization, similes, and metaphors. I cannot stand metaphorization or descriptions built with ornate words, long, unbearable sentences that serve as signs of an author's mastery. Just as we've freed writing from psychology, we must free it from metaphors and similes. Nothing resembles anything else. Could you just talk about how much of a challenge it was to translate that style? Because you also talk in, in the afterword about how translating Edgar feels deceptively easy because of this ostensibly simple style and the near photographic neutrality of his narrators. But obviously, it's not that simple. Well, it isn't in that to replicate this austere style, one risks falling terribly flat. You know, a photograph has this depth that is inherent to the two-dimensional image. So I had to write in a very, very austere manner to recreate Edgu's voice and diction. But I also had to be very mindful of the fact that every word had to count. Every word had to have, you know, had to vibrate, if you will, out of itself. The other challenge that I faced was that I'm implicated in this narrative. I also did very little. In fact, I did nothing for the Kurds all my life. I grew up in a generation that believed that we were all going to go to the East and um, help it develop and uh, thrive. And uh, in fact, many of my friends and I welcomed the National Service Initiative. You know, when I came to this country, I had every reason to believe that after finishing my studies, I would go back to Turkey and I would go to the East. You know, lots of things happened that made that impossible. But there is a lot of emotional baggage here that I had to set aside. I couldn't translate Edgu in a way that 
made it mine, I had to translate it Gu in a way to sort of absent myself as much as he felt absented, if you will, when he arrived there. You know, I had to sort of almost go through a similar process of self-estrangement, if you will. So it, it was a delightful challenge. I mean, I, I loved uh, doing this. And as I say in the afterwards, one technique I used was to produce the first draft as fast as I could. Considering that it took me six years to translate Bilge Karasu's A Long Day's Evening, Uzun Sürmüş Bir Günün Akşamı, considering how patient I can be, to the point of self-infuriation, it was a very big challenge. I, I had to sort of experience that language and move with it as it moved me. And the way to capture it, uh, that austerity required that I, I translate as fast as I could. And then, of course, came the process of, you know, revision and cleaning and, and, and making making things uh, work also on a literary level. So the revision process wasn't as fast, but it was very important to not allow myself to get too engrossed in my own memories and in my own sort of wounded conscience. Now, we've already mentioned A Season in Hakari. It's probably Edgu's best-known work. Mm -hmm. And as we say, it has very similar themes to this volume and a very similar style, actually. Very simple on the surface. And I think it's because of that ostensible simplicity that it was actually the first Turkish-language book that I read years ago. Because on the surface, it appears very plain and direct. And that makes it appear pretty easy to understand. So I think that's why it appealed to my then quite rudimentary Turkish. Mm-hmm. But obviously, I, I missed some of the subtleties of it, no doubt. As I say, The Season in Hakari is one of Egu's best-known works. Are there plans to translate that into English as well? Or any of his other works, for that matter? Oh, yes. Uh, but before that, let me just uh, pick up on something you said, which I really love, which was uh, sort of for a beginning learner of Turkish, and I'm sure you were a little bit more than a beginner, Ed Hakari was wonderful to read because of how austere the language is. I think there is something that we need to understand. He had to actually uncover a language to be able to describe this utterly unfamiliar experience. And so, in a way, the language is elementary just the way it ought to be in order to sort of rise to the occasion or meet the occasion of the experience. So austerity, in fact, is a very difficult uh, style to to achieve. It's not easy because you have to really abandon your, your customary language. About future plans, a season in Hakkari begins with a good many temporal details in terms of the year he went there, in terms of the, the population there, the, the, the size of the district and province, and so on and so forth. And at the same time, the book is about a human landscape that remains not only real and relevant, but also that attains a, that atemporal, that timeless map of human existence that everyone reading it in any particular historical period can appreciate 
and can empathize with, can directly relate to, link with. And I just sort of thought because of the quote-unquote Kurdish problem, I did not want to have a season in Hakkari to come out as an anachronistic book, nor did I want the reader to think that it was about today. It's very important to understand the relationship between memory and intellect. And I wanted to begin my translations of Edgu first with these more visibly, noticeably aphoristic texts that make up the Wounded Age in Eastern Tale, and then to get to A Season in Akari. And in fact, the next book I'd like to translate is A Season in Akari. And then I am planning to translate a substantial amount of the very short narratives, prose pieces that he has assembled in a volume called Lesh, Carcass. And in this Lesh, we have, in fact, the full chronology of Edgu's writing life. And so my hope is that with no one already around, you know, Edgu's book, no one already available, and now The Wounded Age and Eastern Tales coming out, if I followed with A Season in Hakkari and then the short fiction collection Lesh, we would have a similarly encompassing set of texts as we do with Bilge Karasu, for example. And uh, hopefully that will help people appreciate uh, both the style, but also the intellectual and uh, political character of Edgu's writing. Now to conclude for us, I'm going to ask you to read another passage from this volume. Again, just introduce it to us and then let us hear it. Okay, let me first find it. So Edgar talks a great deal about how dreams, or in other words, imagination, can be a more authentic reckoning with reality. And because dreams and imagination are um, not necessarily independent of intellect, but certainly they access the regions of the subconscious that has also experienced, unbeknownst to us, the reality surrounding us. So in dreams and in fiction, as we are imagining, as we are creating an artifice, we're actually untethered, if you will, and we become freer from our intellect. So all of these narratives, therefore, are constantly traversing between reality or realism and surrealism, if you will. So I'm going to read the section where this is most vividly illustrated. It involves his experience by the river, the, the great Zab river that crisscrosses Hakkari and has cost untold number of lives that perished while crossing the river or while fighting. So here goes. Don't come back before you see Zab, they had told me. I saw the river at last, exactly three days before my return date. I was walking, alone, no rifle, no dog, on a sunny day when the melting snow was rushing down like mountain streams. Boots on, 
gaiters wrapped around my legs, sheepskin cloak on my shoulders, kefir on my head. I had walked quite far from the city to a spot where the river reached a clearing. As if I wanted the extraordinary sight to be etched in my memory, I looked. A boat in the distance, or a raft, or maybe a canoe, an old man in it. He wasn't sculling, he was pulling in a net, approaching the riverbank. Thinking I might help, I veered down toward where the boat, or raft, or canoe, or whatever was approaching. Once there, I stopped and shouted. But the old fisherman waved his hand, waving me away. Me? I looked around. There was no one else. I waved my arms and shouted again. Now I could see him better, his white beard, crooked back, the white mesh net he had cast on the shallow water and was now struggling to retrieve. His every move seemed like an exertion, probably because of age. As the boat came closer, his gestures became more discernible. But I had no intention of leaving. There were a pair of hip waders lying on the rocks. I put them on, plunged into the water, and walked toward the boat. The old man started yelling in a language I didn't understand, while he kept trying to retrieve the net. We got closer and closer to each other, and soon I realized why the old man was struggling to pull the net onto his boat. There were no fish. The net was filled with corpses of women, men, and children. This time, I screamed. The old man, still hold onto the net, straightened his body, and passing the net to his left hand, wiped his sweaty brow with his right hand. I told you to leave, he yelled, this time in my language. Now leave. You saw what you wanted to see. Go to hell anyway. I started walking backwards to the edge, my eyes still fixed on him. Corpses of women, of children, swept in the current, brushed past my legs. I screamed. When I came to, my heart pounding against its shell, I was sure I woke up in the afterworld. Close to noon, I arrived at the door of Sheikh Abdullah to ask him to interpret my dream. He didn't look surprised in the least when he saw me standing before him. He let me in. After offering me tea, he listened to my dream. He remained quiet for a while, pensive. Then he got up from his cushion, walked to his wooden chest, and took out a few thick, handwritten, leather-bound books. He read, exhaled. He read, exhaled. He came back holding an unlit candle. Your dream cannot be interpreted, he said. You saw Zab in your dream and saw it exactly as it is. He handed me the candle. Take it. Light it when you find yourself in darkness. Noticing that I understood nothing, he added, we couldn't interpret your dream, but at least for a brief spell, we should illuminate your night. When I touched the candle, I understood the real meaning of my dream, to give out light to the object or the self consumed in the burning flame. Morning fog. I'm watching the water in the distance. I light a cigarette, raise my coat collar, lean on my walking stick. Verevir, Meridur! Come here, don't go far. I look, there is no one by the water. Smoke is rising off the water, as if it has a voice. I listen to my heartbeat, to the reflections of the rising sun on the rock surfaces. The river sound overwhelms all other sounds. No dogs barking, no wolves howling, nothing. No rifle sound, not even a horse neighing. Nothing, just nature, 
the river, the wind, like the earth inhaling. I listen. Then the smoke disperses, reflections of sunlight of the rock surfaces meet the water. The water changes color, red as blood. You wanted to see it, hear, see it then, I say to myself. I toss my cigarette, leaning on my stick. I walk down the hill to the road, then crossing it, reach the river's edge. Startled, I see an old man sitting on his heels by the water. Perfectly still, he seems like he walked out of a fairy tale or a legend. I approach him to say something, but he gestures to me to remain quiet. Quiet, I stand still. A while later, the old man begins to pull at a rope, straining. Don't stare there, he says. Come and help me. I drop my walking stick, grab the end of the rope he hands me, and we begin to pull the heavy net, teeming with fish of all sizes. I told Wahab, my guide, what happened that morning. You must have had a dream, Wahab said. There is no fisherman around here. There has never been. We wouldn't know a fishing net if we saw one. But we pulled it together, I said. I told you, you had a dream, Wahab said. A morning dream. I didn't insist. Just told him, dreams are real too. They can be, Wahab said, but the reverse is not true. He paused, then smiling asked, why wasn't I with you? I don't know, I said. Nobody guides anybody in dreams. That's why, Wahab said. That was Aaron Aji. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 193. Do remember, we need your support to keep Turkey Book Talk going. You can give that support by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon. Membership gets you a 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. Do also rate the podcast or write a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts, or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel for signed up members who want more and they also publish high quality original on the ground reporting which has really been a very key resource throughout the election process. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. (laughs) 